In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Demanding justice, a man approaches Jesus. Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Not having researched the inheritance laws and customs of that time and place, I'm not able to address the social background or legal merit of his claim. But he was cut from the will, feels aggrieved, and wants relief, is all I know. On our rapidly evolving planet, it is almost comforting to realize that some things do never change. Who here does not have a family story, the brother, sister, uncle, cousin, who got left out of their inheritance? When it has to do with someone else's family, these are juicy stories and great for gossip. <laughs> Did you hear about Big Daddy? Dropped dead a week ago last Friday. Choked on an oyster is what I hear, bless his heart. You want to hear something funny? Friday morning before the funeral, the family came together for the reading of the will. Brother man didn't get a dime. Little sister got the house. John boy got the farm. And he left the Cadillac to Fanny Fox. So now down the road comes Brother Man, hair on fire, approaching Jesus. Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Justice, Lord. All I want is what's rightly mine. It's all any of us wants is justice, right? Darn straight. You go for it, brother man. Bypass the probate judge. Skip the federal courts. Peel your case all the way to Jesus, chief justice of the world. Jesus, however, declines jurisdiction. Friend, who set me to be judge or arbitrator over you? It's hard to know what to make of this development. It's none of my business wasn't the expected response. Some scholars have theorized that Jesus was socioeconomically a member of the peasant class. On that basis, I suppose we might interpret this as one of the have-nots, Jesus, telling a member of the upper crust that he's not interested in their problems. The field hands don't really care who got the big house. And by the way, they'd been knowing all along about the boss and Fanny Fox. The problem with that interpretation is that it fails to see that Jesus' demural is ironic. In reading scripture, we consider each part in relation to the whole. So, let's imagine Jesus asking, Who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And a bright third grade Bible student in the crowd immediately throws up her hand. I know, professor. Call on me. And Jesus who, as we know, is fond of children, smiles and says, Yes, Miss Granger? And she replies, You did, sir, in Matthew 25. And she reads the passage. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, O blessed of my father, 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus says, touche. Remember that rule for reading scripture. Consider each part in relation to the whole. Karl Barth called the Bible the organ of the Holy Spirit. The prophets, poets, editors, and writers are the Spirit's keys and stops and pipes and pedals. That organ actually works. The various stories and teachings, like this morning's readings, are its chords and notes. The meaning isn't in the chords and notes in isolation. It's in the chords and notes in combination, a falling and rising and on the whole, a thrilling sound. Returning to our text, Jesus turns the disappointed son's complaint into a teaching moment. As usual, he tells a parable. It's the story about a rich man brought up short. He had built his fortune and now is ready for a retirement, a hard-earned, well-planned, long relaxation. So, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. His mind drifts forward to long naps on hot summer afternoons. Before dinner, bourbon on the rocks. A Friday night drive down to New Orleans for oysters on the half shell and a rendezvous with you-know-who. We've all heard the expression, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. God makes a surprise appearance to the rich man, and God isn't laughing. You fool. <clears throat> this very night, <clears throat> your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, now whose will they be? For those who have, may have missed the moral of the story, Jesus spells it out. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Professor, again, the hand goes up. Is God actually that harsh with people? In church, they told me God is loving. I can answer this one. Actually, Hermione, it's life that's harsh. This is why we parents worry about you children from the day you're born. And as you approach your 16th birthday, our worries build momentum, imagining the first time you head off and down the street at the wheel of the family car. That's why we warn you, beg you, threaten you. Don't drink, don't answer calls, and for the love of Christ, don't text and drive. We can lose you in a heartbeat. But in answer to your question, no, harshness is not an attribute of God. Remember our rule. Read the Bible as a whole and listen to the music. The meaning comes through loud and clear that although life is often difficult and sometimes cruel, God is ever helpful, ever merciful, and always good. That assurance comes with our inheritance as Christians. And the assurance comes with this proviso that God wants the same from us in turn. And that's the rub. 
In this and every other story in the Gospels, Jesus shows and tells us that we've been made by God to live for purposes beyond our own self-interest and amusement. To the extent that we may have been navigating through life by that constellation of that self-interest and amusement, then the divine message may sound ominous. There are movements through the scripture that build toward a fearsome-sounding centers in the hands of an angry God crescendo. But that is a minor thing within the story overall. At the climactic moment, the thunder subsides as the sun breaks through the clouds and the love of Christ overpowers human sin and human foolishness and human error. One of our hymns calls this the song of love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown, that we might lovely be. Our becoming lovely is the greater part of our inheritance. Now one more word about this parable. God said, you fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I hear this parable as one of the world's halves. The fortunate son who came into a significant inheritance. For those in my shoes, this story is, of course, sobering. The Gospels have plenty more where this one comes from, too. Sayings about camels and needles and whatnot, and warnings about rich, self-important men stepping over poor, unimportant beggars now, and then to their chagrin, regret, and eternal sorrow later. I've said this before. It is the rich man, I am the cat, and the Bible is the hot tin roof. And thank God for that. Not only does that keep me sober, always, and focused, mostly, it keeps me hopeful. In the righteousness of God, I find hope for all of humankind, myself included. Last week, I was with Suma at Swanning. As is our custom, on the last night, we walked out at sunset to the Memorial Cross at the Western Bluff, high above the valley. The cross is illuminated and gigantic. It was first built to the memory of Sewanee students who had died in World War I. The memory of those who died in World War II and later conflicts is now included. It reminds me of my college, Amherst, at which the War Memorial likewise occupies the highest and most scenic spot on campus. Amherst is a large granite monument inscribed with the names of places, Normandy, the Ardennes, Arnhem, Guadalcanal, and Coral Sea, and with the full roll of fallen soldiers and sailors and their respective classes, 1915, 1917, 1941, 1969. Altogether, there must have been hundreds of names from more than a century of wars. And I ask you, who would want to live in a moral universe that had nothing beyond tributes carved in granite to offer in honor of the sacrifices of these young men whose lives were demanded at such an early age? 
That is the moral universe supposed in the expression, relax, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That motto is hopeless. The supposed truth it takes for real would give us a world unworthy even of the mother bear trying to feed and protect her cubs, much less the 22-year-old ranger who lost his future off the beach at Normandy. I don't like that moral universe. Give me a moral universe that I can love and honor, a hot tin roof where I am answerable for how I live to a good and loving God. Yes, the gospel warns against greed and selfish irresponsibility, and those warnings actually are promises because they come with the wonderful assurance that this is, in the end, a good world and that life is, in the end, a great gift. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, and the poor in spirit. Blessed are the persecuted righteous. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those soldiers whose names are carved in memorials throughout the world. Blessed are those who mourn. This is the moral universe I want, and this is the moral universe that we do inhabit. This is the moral universe where Jesus Christ is judge and Lord. To him be ascribed all honor, glory, power, and dominion, now and forever. Amen. We believe in one God, 